So good evening. It being the first Thursday of the month, that makes it Q&A night. So I don't have a specifically prepared Dharma talk, but I very much um, welcome questions about your practice or about the Buddhist teachings or if you want any to comment on your meditation, anything that's, that's on your mind. I guess just since some of you haven't done this, um, generally I prefer that there isn't a lot of cross-talking, so that if somebody brings up something to discuss, um, they know that it's not a, they're not going to be receiving advice from others in the room, for example. It just maintains the atmosphere. Oh, yeah. So a song stuck in your head. How many people have experienced that? (laughs) Yeah, okay, so at least probably half the people here immediately put their hands up. And if you haven't, you probably will soon because you now know it's a possibility. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's a good question because this happens um, sometimes with songs and even, of course, we all have the repetitive thoughts or memories that, that come up. Um, so, songs are so insidious, aren't they? Um, when I've had things like that, I've, um, I've turned and watched my mind that was experiencing that song. So yeah, the song's going... But I turn and I look and I check my attitude about that song being there. So, um, for example, we might think just on the surface, oh, I hate that, (laughs) you know, I'm tired of that. Uh, Oh no, there it is again. Um, So there's some, you know, there is presumably some aversion there. But it's also possible that there's some part of the mind that is actually enjoying it or is using it for some purpose. Like, um, my mind has a habit sometimes of um, singing or having just a, a, like some kind of a tune going in the background at a time when I'm, I'm needing to stay oriented. So I've noticed like it'll happen in airports. Um, if it's like a busy airport and I'm trying to figure out where to go, um, my mind will start playing a tune, and it's because I want a thread that I can follow. Oh, could somebody get the lights? <laughs> Thanks. Um, so there's something in my mind that wants there to be a thread of continuity. Thank you. And uh, um, so it's kind of serving that purpose. So it's helpful to... Um, maybe include a bigger frame than just the, the song itself and kind of look at the context in which it's occurring and how the mind is responding to it. It doesn't necessarily mean it will go away, but it certainly 
uh, illuminates a little bit what's going on in the mind while it's doing that, and that can often provide information about what the mind is wanting, what the mind is not wanting, what mood it's in, these other factors that are kind of useful to know. Does that help at all? Thank you. And then when it finally stops, you'll experience the bliss of silence. (laughs) I know someone who, she's a teacher actually, a long-time teacher, and she got something stuck in her head on retreat, and it went on for days, and she was just shocked because she was, she thought, how can this be happening? And then, but she finally just gave up, which is, of course, what you really have to do. And, um, and as soon as she decided it was totally fine, of course, it completely just stopped. <laughs> you know? But we can't will that to happen. Yeah. Trevor? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if, how to pronounce his name, but he's a great teacher, I guess. Long Po, P-U. Oh, um, Long Poor Sumedo? No, he's, he's an uh, Asian, a Thai. Oh, he's Thai, Thai, okay. He's not alive anymore. It's just Long, long P-U, and I don't know if it's... Okay. says that said like to study the Dhamma is you don't need to study much Dhamma you need to uh, let me explain to the monks you need to know the, the uh, Vinaya and, and practice the Vinaya um, and have that really be embodied to really practice the way so I was wondering how that would fit in for um Hmm. Yeah, so um, for those of you who don't know the words, he's using the, um, the Vinaya, or the, the Vinaya, is the code of monastic discipline. And so if you ordain as a monk, there are 227 precepts to obey, or to embody, I should say. And uh, um, that contrasts with the other teachings of the Buddha, the suttas and the Abhidhamma. Um, and so what this monk is saying, what this teacher is saying, is to really embody the vinya is what one should do in practice rather than study, um, presumably referring to the suttas. Um, yeah, so this is, you know, I don't, I don't know precisely what he had in mind when he said that, and you've asked for the sort of Western non-monk equivalent of that. So at a basic level, of course, we have the precepts instead of the 227 monastic rules. We have the five precepts as lay people, which we may have taken formally or or not. We may just um, have heard about them. And one way to, to just make a very simple parallel is to say, well, for lay people, we need to really embody the five precepts. <clears throat> and at first, this sounds like a kind of a, you know, simplistic instruction. I'll name what the precepts are in a moment. But actually, I'd like to argue that it can go very deep. Um, to really embody the precepts goes very deep. And so the, the five precepts for lay people are to abstain from taking life, to abstain from taking what is not given, to abstain from sexual misconduct or inappropriate use of sexual energy, to abstain from false speech, specifically false speech, but sometimes it's extended to include harsh and divisive speech and gossip, 
and then also to refrain from intoxicating the mind or the body. So those alone, of course, are you know a fair amount of important behavior, especially the speech one, right? Even if we say, well, geez, you know, I don't kill people at least, um, or very many things, and so forth. Uh, we are you know, we are speaking quite a lot, and speech can include email, texting. Some people say speech includes the thoughts that precede speech. You know, we're very careful with those also. So if we were to really, and to embody is not just to know them really well intellectually, it's to live them, such that other people, when they encounter us, they know that that is the, that's what we're about, that's the way we live. You can feel that in people when they're very virtuous, there's a teaching in the Udana um, that asks, you know, how can you judge uh, the quality of a person who judges someone's awake or has good qualities? And the Buddha gives several examples, but um, one of them he talks about virtue, and he says, virtue is to be known by living with a person, and only then by one who is attentive, not inattentive, by one who is discerning, not undiscerning, and only after a long time, not after a short time. So even judging the virtue of another person is something that we need to take in over time. It's a very um, sort of subtle and deep way that somebody is in the world. Very uh, serious and sincere. It's not a surface-level thing. So... um, As we start to take on practicing the precepts, we also discover that they're really not as simple as they might seem, in that, you know, for example, not taking what is not given, we can say, well, geez, you know, I don't don't steal, but what about interrupting in conversations? You know, if you weren't given the floor, some people have a habit of interrupting, some people have a family pattern where it's expected that you'll interrupt. That's the way it is. And so then working with that and working with, well, how can I be with my family and interact in that way, but not taking... People run into all kinds of subtleties when they start to actually try to make the precepts into something that works in their life. And I don't think they always look the same way. It's very easy to idealize these teachings on virtue and embodiment and try to make ourselves look like something that we learned in church long ago or something that somebody told us or we rebel against it and say I'm not going to do that (laughs) whatever it is we learn our relationship to these things Um, I don't think they always look the same way I don't think that was the intention precepts are basically intentions of non-harming so there's that, you know, as, the, as lay people, is can we really live in accordance with our heart? It's even said that the, there's a lovely sutta that says, the Tathagata, which means the Buddha, the Tathagata says as he does and does as he says. It is for that reason that he's called the Tathagata. So that's interesting in that it says being congruent between what you say and what you do is actually something that marks a person as a Buddha. 
That means the rest of us can feel okay about not being fully aligned between those two. Um, but it also says, it speaks to, I think, how deeply it has to be integrated into someone to be able to really wholly live the teachings. But I think I might um, kind of broaden a little bit. This is now, you know, my additional interpretation. Broaden a little bit what he says um, because of that first part where he said, you don't need to study a lot, you just need to do the vinya. There are variations on that quote that you'll hear. You know, you don't need to read a lot of books, you only need to read your heart, for example. Or you don't need to know a lot intellectually, um, you need to practice, <laughs> you need to sit. And so there's, there's a way in which um, what we're encouraged to do in practice is not keep it at the conceptual level. Now, I teach Sutta study here, some of you know, so I, I am a big fan of learning the teachings and knowing um, what the Buddha said and how the suttas connect together and those sorts of things, but I don't mistake that for the aim of practice. Uh, it's, a, it's a doorway for some people. It's one of the reasons I offer it. For some, it's a way in. And it's also just, um, it's also just helpful for rounding out all the features of our mind. We have an intellectual mind, we have an emotional heart, we have the body, we have all kinds of aspects of our being. And so I, I like to put the Dharma into all of them. <laughs> but it's true that in the end, remember that there was no there were no texts written down in the Buddha's time. The Buddha didn't study the suttas, the Buddha didn't write the suttas. They weren't even written during his lifetime. So there was no sutta study for centuries after his death, although you know, there was recitation of his teachings, of course. Um, so, in the end, awakening doesn't have anything to do with the intellect. It's not about that. Um, and so I think another aspect of what that teacher was saying was to make sure that the teachings become real, they become manifest, not just something that we think about or appreciate or like or have a conceptual understanding of. That's what comes to mind with that. Does that help? Yeah, I think so. It would be helpful if I had a little book to describe it in. Page has lots of different phrases, what teaching he gives in a short passage, but um, I think so. That's what thing I'm noticing in slowing down my mind and practice and in daily life is awareness of anger. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to cultivate a different kind of relationship with it than just speeding through activity. Yeah. So I wondered what your teaching might be on that. Mm. Yeah, so it's a 
It's important to have noticed that, that there's a lot of anger in your mind right now. Um, or at least it's up for you in various ways. Um, when you're experiencing anger, what, is it, what does it feel like? What do you notice about it? combination of thoughts like how could she be asking me for that or mm, yeah. tension or resentment or wanting to when the anger comes up saying but I must tell that person you know um, so things yes. telling me what to do so it has an urgency about yeah. it yeah um, what, what do you feel in your body Something where I want to be defending and protecting, then I feel kind of adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or if it's more of an intellectual thing, <clears throat> then it could be more tension, fear, fighting. Yeah, those are, see, these are good observations. This is um, kind of a way of investigating a little bit what's going on. So, um, and you've identified that there are different kinds. Um, You know, the the first kind is kind of uh, defensiveness of some kind. And then the second is sounds more like righteousness or something where we're thinking about something and it can rile us up about the injustice or the outrage of it. Um, Yeah, all these things go on. And it's important to feel it in the body to the degree that we can. So um, you described, yeah, tension um, and also some urgency that usually feels like, um, it's actually unpleasant feeling in the body, right, of kind of agitation, um, directed energy. There's also usually often heat associated with anger um, and possibly um, so yeah, burning, actually, and then possibly some other kinds of feelings, sometimes usually um, gripping of some kind. I think you mentioned that one. So it's important to kind of locate where those are in the body for us. It can be different for different people. And this isn't like just some amusing exercise. It's actually because when we're grounded in the body, it's a lot easier to be able to resist that energy, to not have so much reactivity, because we have it kind of grounded. You can even feel your feet on the ground. And all of that is designed to just create some space so that you have uh, options about how you respond to what's coming up for you. Sometimes people find Um, an acronym useful for working with strong emotions. This teaching was originally given by Michelle McDonald and has then been picked up by Tara Brock. It's called RAIN, 
And that stands for um, recognize, which you've already done. And then acknowledge or accept. It's accept. Um, so instead of like denying it or pushing it away or pretending it's not there because it's not very spiritual or you know whatever initial reaction about it we might have, we say, okay, I'm angry. You know, that's what's happening. And then the I I've just described is investigate. So it's, you know, what what does this feel like? What is this urgency of it? Um, all of this is without really engaging the content of it. You know, we'll, it's kind of beside the point while we're doing the investigation. And so, you know, really learn what anger is like for you at this moment. And that even includes, if it's the 25th time we're looking at it, approaching it fresh nonetheless and saying, wow, what's it like this time? Maybe it's different. And not just assuming, oh, blah, 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 there's the anger, I'm so used to that. Because that, um, that's a little dismissive of the anger. And then the, the N um, is for non-identifying. So not identifying with it. And that's a step where if we identify with the anger, we might say, oh, I'm such an angry person. I'm just, I'm always angry. And we start creating this kind of story and self around it. And that can be unhelpful to us also um, because it solidifies the anger and can um, lead also to us wanting to suppress it in the future. So non-identifying and uh, one teacher, Ute Jania, suggests even using a little wisdom phrase like, this is nature. I mean, anger is a force of nature. There, when the, It's there when the conditions for it are there. And it's not there when the conditions for it aren't there. It's, it's as simple as that, although, you know, more complex to let go of it, of course. So it doesn't have to be something that you take on and own as, I'm, I'm so angry, I'm so bad, or even... The other person, she's so bad, she's making me angry. Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, it's something with a lot of complex conditions. So the non-identification just helps us be able to stay in that uh, non-reactive space. And you, it, this doesn't at all say that the point of anger is that you don't ever act on it. Um, anger is a signal. It's telling us something. Um, might be telling us that we're being overreactive, or it might be telling us that there's harm being done and something should be said or done. But that choice needs to be made from a space that's open and informed and is has an intention, at least, of not harming. Does that help a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, behind. I had a question. I've, I'm trying to get clarity on the term delusion as it's referenced, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion. Okay, yeah, greed, hatred, Pretty delusion. Pretty clear on the other two, but delusion I seem to have a lot of trouble with, particularly because of the psychological, Western psychological implication, and it seems when I try to get a grasp on it, it never really solidifies in my mind. Okay, that's a really good question. So, greed, hatred, and delusion, that set that he's named are the called the three poisons, um, the three kind of roots of unwholesome activity. Actually, those are the three roots that will cause us to break the precepts, for example. Um, And delusion, of course, as you said, has implications. It's It's a word that's charged in our language. And so, you know, people who are deluded, it's a very negative phrase. And so 
Sometimes it's helpful to use the word confusion instead. Not that that's a super positive word either, but you know, neither is greed. <laughs> so um, I see delusion in this sense as having maybe two major aspects. Um, one of them is actually confusion. So it's the way the mind cannot just not be clear on what it's seeing. And this happens sometimes because we're literally a little fuzzy. Um, you know, it's confusing to, it's, it's sometimes the mind is overwhelmed by stimulus or whatever, and so there's a little confusion there. Um, or sometimes it's not seeing things correctly because it's using a lens that's a little bit warped, like if we're projecting something from our psychological past onto a present situation, we're in a state of confusion. We're not relating, like let's say, to make a concrete example, let's say I meet somebody who looks like a roommate I had in college that I had a terrible relationship with. And then every time I see this person, all these memories of my college roommate come up. And I might even relate to them a little bit like that roommate. that's delusion, that's confusion, because I've got something else that's not part of the present moment strongly influencing how I'm behaving in the present moment. So I'm projecting, um, and that that's not being in reality, it's not being in tune with what's going on if I'm not aware that that's coming in. So that's an aspect of delusion. So that's all part of this confusion, not seeing clearly aspect of it. And then... The second aspect of delusion, major aspect, is a strong identification, creation of a self. So there's the delusion of kind of the whole worldview that I'm a separate being that's interacting with an external world of solid objects and other people, and um, we tend to live our lives this way. I'm deliberately painting a picture of how we often see things. Um, but it's not actually completely true. And so we can um, have these sort of distortions of the way we're seeing things. And any time that we're strongly identified and saying, I am this, or I am not this, or you are like this, or I'll always be like this, or something, um, that's also not being in touch with reality, with the changing, uh, empty nature of things. And that's, that's a little harder to uproot all of that. The, these three poisons are related in that anytime there's greed or hatred, there's also delusion. Um, because wanting and not wanting in that strong, gripping way uh, is associated with not seeing clearly. We think that we desperately need something. You know, the, the, the strong wanting of greed... Um, we're not understanding at that moment that freedom doesn't depend on us getting something or getting rid of something. So there's delusion associated automatically with greed and hatred, or delusion can stand on its own in the way that I described. Does that help answer your question? Very good, thank you. Okay.
Yeah. Do you talk a little bit about um, skillful methods to disidentify with with the self and yet still um, operate in the world and take care of responsibilities, but to cultivate that uh, awareness? Yeah, that's a great question because, of course, you know, we do live in the world here and we have relationships and we have responsibilities and maybe a job or being a student or whatever. So it's it's not like um, <clears throat> disidentifying or uh, beginning to work on this question of the self is going to mean that we give all that up or, you know, let go of all our responsibilities or something. So it's I think this is a very important point. Um, mostly what we want to do is just stop suffering so much around me and I and mine and keeping track of all my stuff and guarding it and holding it and pushing away the stuff that isn't right and getting the stuff that I need. Just as I name that, I see nods. It's like that's a lot of effort, right? And so we want to find ways to live more lightly with ourselves. And as far as um, skillful means, the suggestion in the early teachings is to just notice that particular things are not ourself, actually. So it's not so much that we have to worry about what is the true self or say there is no self. We just notice, like, for example, that our body isn't really our self. Like, um, like if, you, if you cut your fingernails, which we do fairly regularly, and then you know, they fall into the sink. Do you say that's you? As soon as they're off the body, they're like, yuck, they're not, you know, it's like throw them away. If you find your partner's hair in the uh, shower drain, is that the same as your partner? Not as attractive as your partner, is it? So it's different, right? So this we can start looking, you know, the ways in which we think, we're so sure that something is the self, or is me, or is them, um, how quickly it cannot be. And so, little hints like that. Um, we can also look at whether our, you know, our perceptions are our self. You know, do I identify with my particular way of seeing things? You bet we do, but then you talk to somebody else, and they have a completely different... Uh, take on something that's going on, or even the same memory. You went to the same party, and you had a great time, and then you finally get around to going to the person who's driving you home and saying, well, you know, what do you think? And they say, oh, thank goodness, you're finally ready to go. I've had the worst time. So, you know, they did not experience it the same way that you did at all. So we can quickly say, oh, okay, you know, this is not a um, something I can identify with as, you know, absolutely existing, definitely it is this way. So we just notice again and again, these are not me. Or how about aging? You know, we look in the mirror and there's a new wrinkle. It's like, uh, <laughs> um, you know, the body of my 20s slash 30s slash 40s is gone. Um, what is this new one? And I didn't get to control that. So the little ways in which... Um, there are cracks in this edifice of I'm a permanently existing being and I can control my world, etc. So, kind of ways in which we are changing out of our control is a good one. And then for kind of a fun one, we can literally take 
we can notice the difference in our relationship if we're identifying with things or not. So, for example, you can pick up a, you know, a familiar object that's technically yours, like this is my cell phone. So I can hold it in my hand. And I recommend trying this at home, actually. Um, pick up something and say, this is mine. And really feel that. This is mine. This is my cell phone. Yep, it's mine. <laughs> and really feel like, what does that feel like? And then hold the same object and say, this, this is not mine. And you don't mean it's somebody else's. I'm going to give it to my daughter. You know, you, you just hold it and say, this is not mine. Feel the difference. It's a lot more spacious if it's not yours. <laughs> and it also feels more true. Because after all, um, it could be stolen. I could drop it. Um, you know, whatever. At some point, it won't be mine. Actually, this is a refurbished cell phone. I didn't buy it new. So it really used to be somebody else's. <laughs> and so, you know, I hope they're realizing that it's not theirs. So... You know, is there anything that is really ours? Really, truly yours? It starts to weaken the grip a little bit, which actually helps a lot. It's very relieving to realize that things are not, we're not so responsible for everything and such an owner and such a, so, so involved with everything. So these are little ways that we can investigate this. told this story before, but I, I had a funny experience on retreat one time. I was on retreat over at IRC, the center in Scotts Valley, and um, I was doing walking meditation in the parking lot, and I was just walking by, happened to be walking by a row of cars back and forth, back and forth, <coughs> and I didn't have any particular thoughts about the lo- you know, my surroundings. I was really just doing walking meditation. And then this thought drifted through my mind. Oh, this is around the place where I parked. And I hadn't thought about my car in days because I'd been on retreat. And I was actually walking right by my car. It was in one of those ones in the row of cars I was walking by. And it was so fascinating to watch the change in that car when it was suddenly that this one was mine and those other three or four that I'm walking by are not mine. And it was like this um, this kind of blossoming in the mind of recognition and, you know, there's the color and are the tires still inflated? And, you know, the little things that just come with re- recognizing it as my car compared to just, you know, a random other car that I'm walking by. It's very interesting to see that. That's a, it's just a process in the mind of identification to see that coming about. You could check it on the way out, actually, as you're 
you're going to look at all those shoes and you're going to find your shoes. <laughs> See how they look different. And for somebody else, it's a different pair of shoes that has that mine quality to it. Of course, the shoes don't care, by the way. They don't know <laughs> whose they are. Seems to be a, a large component of suffering. <laughs> Mine, possession, yeah. yeah. Uh, just because that when you lose mine, there's pain and there's resistance to losing mine, whatever it is. <laughs> Unless you didn't want it. Yeah. We don't mind losing our anger, but it's true. Many things that we are attached to, we end up, we want it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big one. So, I mean, that's another means of investigating, actually, is to turn toward the suffering associated with that grip. You know, and it's not that we don't have things that are ours, in a sense. It's true enough, conventionally. Um, You know, you have to keep paying for your car registration, or it's a problem. And if you go out, I hope you'll get in your car, and not somebody else's car. Not that you could... So there's a way in which, you know, in which it's conventionally true. So the question is, again, like I was saying earlier, is how to hold this kind of lightly. But it's a practice, for sure. Um, The practice of letting go, or the practice of generosity, to take the other side of it. So one way to work with the pain of mind is to give, to practice generosity and to consider um, giving away something that is actually somewhat meaningful to you. Feel what that feels like. Um, It's a beautiful practice, actually, because generosity in and of itself is very wholesome and feels very good, and so it directly counters that grip and we feel the letting go. It starts to train the mind that that's a more easeful way to live. It's just habit that has us thinking that we have to hold on to be happy. It's just a habit, but um, it's not going to change quickly. So that's why we have these practices. As a very introductory generosity practice, it's sometimes recommended that you take two objects and, or you take an object, just one, and you pass it into your other hand. And you notice what it's like. You, hey, this is mine, I have it. And then you give it, and you feel the giving, and you feel the receiving into the other hand, which used to be empty. And then you give it back. And then you can start to see um, what it's like to do that, and then I suppose you could put it down and take your hand away, and then you haven't given it to another person, so it maybe doesn't feel quite as good, but you've let go of it completely. You can still sort of have the grip if you move it back and forth, oh, it's, I'm not really losing it, and you put it down. So these are simple exercises, not because we're remedial and I don't trust that you know how to give, but actually because when you do it so simply, 
it starts to, it really highlights the mind and it highlights what's going on in the mind. These are very interesting little things to try. And the guideline is always where is there less stress, less struggle, less suffering. Move in that direction. Okay, so we're we're winding down. If there's one more, we could do that. Um, something that I've, uh, I've been working with a little bit is in the process of um, integrating past experiences. Something that I feel like I have to do often is recall the memory of that experience and kind of work through it in my mind. But that often feels contrary to the practice of meditation. Because you're recalling a past memory and mm-hmm. not being with the present. But, so I'm wondering if there's if there are recognized meditative practices that that can call in that deliberately call up mind states. Yeah. Well, sure. The um, even in early Buddhism, the uh, reflective practices about that, like uh, generating loving-kindness and compassion, you're deliberately creating those mind states. As far as calling up um, memories deliberately, it's not so much emphasized as you've noted in the just basic mindfulness practice, but there are um, purification practices in other Buddhist traditions that do this, um, particularly the Tibetan tradition, so uh, practices of um, calling up, sometimes they're called demons, and then uh, there's a process of feeding them, uh, things like that. So ways of um, experiencing painful past emotions and allowing them to release, essentially. Um, I think it's acceptable within regular mindfulness practice, if you're doing it, if you already have some experience in meditation, to um, touch into things that you feel like are kind of hovering at the edge of the heart. Um, I don't know about, you know, creating fantasies, um, but if it's something that's there and it's been kind of lingering in your, so the, off to the, the wings of your awareness, I think it's okay to turn attention toward that and say, hey, what are you? Um, and kind of widen the sphere of awareness to bring that in and then deliberately experience it in mindfulness in the body. Um, the associated emotions that come with it. I think that's fine if it was already kind of pushing for attention. Yeah. And that's an important part of um, of integrating and learning to work with 
emotions and releasing things from the past. Mm-hmm. Does that help? Looks like we might have something else. No, okay. No, it was helpful. I, I practiced psychotherapy and was, I was creating that space to go through mm-hmm. a session. But I think uh, even creating some space to, rather than having to go through the memory, to even just send that person loving kindness or without having to go through the memory to yeah. still stay present. I don't think things have to be completely re-experienced to be released, and that's from my own experience, is that often what's holding them is something in the body even, and just feeling the body sensations. I've had releases of things where I never knew what it was. It doesn't matter, actually. It doesn't really matter. And really evoking a strong memory, if it's traumatic, can re-traumatize a person. So uh, there are various techniques. Somatic experiencing, for example, that usually don't call up the whole experience. They kind of track around it, you know, a little bit before what happened, a little bit after, slowly, slowly titrating the body's ability to hold it. And you may never actually have to visit the whole thing um, for it to um, move through in some way. So these, yeah, I think these are fine within Western, what we would consider Western meditation practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.